Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That uh, with episode 430 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right. Getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to talk all things AEW and NXT, AEW building up to not only double or nothing, but all out and all in coming up in a few months. NXT, of course, building towards spring break in the TV special and NXT Battleground in May. Tons of stuff happening across both brands. And as always, the Silver King is thrilled to be here sharing it all with you. Speaking of things that we always do here at the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, allow me to open the show with a reminder that this podcast is all about the five. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review because if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, and so much more. Again, all on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And lastly, one other reminder. This show, The Silver King and Vintage Vanini, we happen to be fond of a special number. I happen to love the number five. And if you're a fan of the number five as well, you can join us over at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Link also in our Twitter bio and become an official getting overhead. You get news posts, bonus episodes, and so much more all by being part of that group. These podcasts will remain free on the feed as always. This is just a little bit extra getting over for your ear holes and your eye holes, you can enjoy it, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over for as low as $5 a month. We would appreciate if you join us over there. With all of that out of the way, it is officially time to get into today's show, the 430th edition of Getting Over, which means that episode 500 is coming up fast. And we just see, it seems like we just finished episode 400. So it's crazy how fast all of this is going, but we love that you are here along for the ride with us. Now, on the show, as I mentioned, we're going to talk AEW and NXT. We're going to kick off the show with AEW. We'll wrap it up with NXT. There's a lot that happened in AEW this week between Dynamite Rampage and the Battle of the Belts special. I did watch All Access. I have absolutely nothing to discuss coming out of that. Uh, but we're going to break down AEW first. There are timestamps in the episode description. So if you're getting into the show right now and you only really watch one brand or the other, or you only want to listen about one brand or the other, you can hit the episode description. You can check the timestamps and skip around. But as always, I do hope you listen to the entire show. So beginning with AEW, I'm just going to kind of say it straight up at the top here because, you know, I, sometimes I get accused of being extra harsh on AEW. When I love it, I love it. I do. I mean, when they put on banger matches and high quality episodes of Dynamite, you know, many weeks, there's nothing better in professional wrestling than AEW. But then there's weeks like this where Rampage and Battle of the Belts, to me, were a complete waste of time. And then I go to Dynamite and I had some good wrestling on the show. Don't get me wrong. There were two matches in particular that I loved. But a lot of the storytelling throughout the entire episode, I just kind of was left with a confusion or a problem with something that happened in it. And you're going to understand as we go some of the holes that I'm poking into it. It's not because I want to poke holes. These are things that I'm, you know, I don't take like three extra hours after AEW goes off the air or WWE or any show that I watch and like painstakingly find things that I don't like. I watch the product live. I take notes as I'm watching it. And then sometimes they'll take 10 minutes at the end of the show and just fill out some of those thoughts. That way I make sure I convey everything I want to on the podcast. Well, when I watched Dynamite on Wednesday, I was going through the show and I was just like, why did this happen? This doesn't make sense. Why aren't they doing this instead? And I just found myself doing it all episode, not purposefully, just because a lot of what happened on Dynamite was frustrating. So listen with an open mind. I hope you understand uh, what I'm going to say here. I'm not saying the whole show is bad. There were a lot of things that were great on Dynamite this Wednesday, but there were a lot of things that really frustrated me as a viewer, as a critic, as someone who does this show for you week in and week out. So let's go ahead, get right to all of it. We'll start Believe it or not, with Battle of the Belts, where Brandon Cutler and Michael Nakazawa were the only elite members available to interview on that show. Brandon called the rest of the group guys who stand up to bullies, and they decided they were going to be elite and challenge Blackpool Combat Club because they're going to stand up to bullies just like their friends. 
So that led to a match on Dynamite that we will get to momentarily. Before that, Kenny Omega on Dynamite cut a tape promo from his home saying the elite plan to take care of Blackpool Combat Club in the ring. But what they did to Don Callis was too far for Omega because he's like family to him. Omega said what he would do to BCC when he sees them next would be much, much worse than blood for blood. And this was probably one of Omega's top couple promos in AEW. Strong stuff really set the tone for what is clearly going to be a blood and guts match eventually. AEW on Dynamite also showed the gash in Don Callis's head, which apparently, if you believe all reports, was not like purposeful. Like he literally took a fall and his head got gashed open. He wasn't planning to blade. It's just how it happened. Now they're playing it into the story. That's totally fine. But let me just be honest. Like I don't care that it's eight o'clock at night on a cable station. I didn't need to see that unprompted. Just this huge gash in someone's forehead, basically showing their skull. Like maybe give a little bit of a warning you know, fade it out a little bit, do something to just not present like the guts really of this right in front of a national viewing audience of which, by the way, there's still a number of kids who watch AEW despite the cursing, despite some of the other stuff that happens. Anyway, there was a match on the show that I mentioned, Cutler and Nakazawa against John Moxley and Claudio Castagnoli. So BCC attacked the elite goons during their entrance with Nak immediately blading the referee, though, despite one guy profusely bleeding from the head, rang the bell anyway, didn't even check on the guy. Claudio put Nock in a sharpshooter, so then Cutler gets in the ring. Somehow, he's bloodied, despite the fact that he's wearing a plastic face guard over his face. So then Cutler gets in the ring, and Mox bites his face, so it gushes more blood, hits him with a lariat, Death Rider, and the Bulldog Choke. Nock saved the submission. So BCC just continued beating the shit out of these guys and submitting them until the referee just called for a stoppage in a match that never should have started in the first place. No submission, no pinfall. He just stopped the match. Mox grabs a mic. He screams at the Bucks after the match. And then Omega enters like two minutes later to distract. The Bucks run in from behind with super kicks and a BTE trigger on Mox. Kenny was going to drive some really big case into Mox's head. But instead, Matt Jackson handed him a screwdriver, because don't forget, BCC used a screwdriver on Hangman Page's head. And then Kenny's like standing there, and he's clearly going to use it. But he like waits for 60 seconds. And then he runs and attacks Mox. Mox, of course, gets pulled out of the ring, and the screwdriver goes right into the turnbuckle pad. And really what all of this told me is these guys really do not give a flying fuck about Cutler and Knock. They let their boys get absolutely bludgeoned and cut open despite them being backstage the entire time. It's one thing if they said, okay, you know what? Hands off, let them do the match. And as soon as the post-match beatdown starts, we're going to run out. They let that shit go. They let these guys get absolutely mutilated before they finally decided, hey, let's make our surprise save and take out BCC. Now, the return was hot at the end, no doubt about it. But I really do believe that if they saved the return for next week, and let these guys get the shit kicked out of them here, it would have made a lot more sense. Either that, or as soon as it's clear that this match is a stoppage, then Omega comes out, and, they, and then the Bucks come out, and you do exactly what you do. You don't let them get beat down more, then let Mox cut a promo, let them get beat down even more after that, and then Omega finally comes out. It was just absolutely ridiculous the way this was paced. It didn't make a shred of sense to me. On Rampage, Darby Allen fought Lee Moriarty. Jim Ross was excited to tell us that Darby got run over by a car while skateboarding in New York over the week. Big Bill distracted at one point. Darby hit Code Red on Lee. A tope suicida on Bill. Then the coffin drop on Lee for the win. Good action in this. Obvious winner. Also on Rampage, Swerve Strickland entered as Darby exited and offered his hand before Darby could decide whether to shake. Brian Cage jumped out and attacked him. And it was revealed through commentary that Mogul Affiliates has linked with the embassy, except like no one else from either of the groups was there except for those people. Like talk about a lackluster reveal. A C-rate group links with another C-rate group that has largely been in a different promotion for most of this time. Like it's mind-numbing stuff. So then on Dynamite, of course, we got Darby against Swerve, which is an old match that they've done a million times from Seattle. They're both kind of from the area um, and awesome. Two great talents in the ring together. Darby hit his flip over stunner and bullet tope suicida at the bell. Swerve came back with a hanging double stomp over the ropes outside. Darby literally bit Swerve's foot and then hit a flip over inverted DDT, followed by a slow setup poison Rana off the apron outside. 
Darby immediately hit a coffin drop as the Prince Nana guy uh, put Swerve's foot on the rope in clear view of the referee. Darby chased him back, and then Cage met him on the ramp. Swerve caught him back inside with a side head thrust kick and the coup de grace selling the ankle on the landing. Darby stomped Swerve's foot to counter the JML driver. Then Cage tripped him running the ropes. And finally, after three different interferences, the referee's like, you know what? You guys shouldn't be here anymore. So he ejects them from ringside. Darby caught Swerve coming back in the ring with Code Red and then trapped him in Last Supper for the win. It was an exceptionally wrestled match. Four stars, A-. minus. Even the distractions in the finish didn't really dissuade me that much. The one confusion that I have, and we'll talk about this a little more in a moment, remains why Swerve and Keith Lee who are in the middle of a feud with each other, are starting feuds with other people, upper mid-carters at that, and main eventers, and then losing to those people. Like, with Swerve, in this case, losing, it was pretty much clean. In Keith Lee later, it wasn't. But it's nonsensical booking when a feud is not finished, yet you're having the people in that feud lose to others when you have this many names on the roster that could be utilized instead of them in those respective spots. And then Swerve later in the show cut an angry promo saying he's not done building the group yet. I can't even imagine who else they're going to add. Members of the firm? Like, what are we doing here? So on Dynamite, immediately after this match, MJF entered. Uh, His sunglasses were noticeably crooked, and it really annoyed the hell out of me the entire segment. Darby sat in a corner in his trench coat as MJF put over their singles match, but said Allen isn't on his level. Darby said being on national TV hasn't made either of them happy, and he revealed that he checked himself into therapy during his first year in AEW, which I thought was pretty cool that he mentioned that. Uh, Then he put himself over for taking care of his parents. MJF said he's sick of the other pillars whining about his lack of morals because morals kill careers. He said Darby's a gutless coward, not a daredevil, because he's unwilling to make the necessary sacrifices. MJF said he's willing to do whatever it takes to be the greatest of all time, while Darby's legacy is just going to be as Sting's bitch. So, of course, Sting entered. He circled MJF, and he said he wasn't daddy daycare, but a cheerleader, throwing a bunch of pom-poms at him. It was really forced. Uh, Then he mentioned Cody, saying that Cody was MJF's support system, just like Sting was Darby's, and Ric Flair was Sting's back when he was younger. He said uh, time was almost over for him, but Darby's was just beginning, and he'd become world champion. And it ended with MJF spitting in Darby's face and dipping out of the ring. You know, this entire storyline is pretty interesting. Rather than MJF building upon one feud week after week leading into a pay-per-view, he's basically building three separate feuds simultaneously, all in rather formulaic fashion. Like, potential challenger wins a match, MJF comes out and talks shit, promo battle created to get oohs and ahs with some one-liners, and this one with Darby and Sting was far better than what we got with Sammy. Though, it was funny how MJF was like, hey, Darby, you're Sting's bitch. And then Sting came out and was like, keep my bitch's name out your effing mouth. Kind of proving his point. I also kept thinking, okay, and? With that part really never coming here. But there's still six weeks left until Double or Nothing. There's plenty of time for them to really flush this out. All in all, it was a good segment, but I did have some of those notes as I was watching it. And then wrapping up this overall thing, Uh, Keith Lee fought Chris Jericho in the main event of Dynamite. Keith taunted Chris with a kiss on the forehead. Jericho hit the springboard dropkick much later. Keith pounced him. Jericho got knees up on a moonsault, but sold a knee off of it as Keith was relatively unaffected. Jericho raked Lee's eyes in clear view of the referee and then got walls of Jericho locked in, but Lee reached the ropes. There was distractions with Lee tossing Daniel Garcia into the ring. Keith caught a codebreaker clean in midair, moving it into a spirit bomb as Garcia distracted the referee. Swerve then ran in, jabbing Lee in the head with something, some type of case or boombox or whatever, over the ropes as Jericho just draped an arm over him for the one, two, three, and the victory. Very similar, I believe it was, uh, to Daniel Garcia's win on Rampage a couple weeks ago over Brody King, I think is what it was. Almost identical finish to that. Uh, Adam Cole entered after the bell, dapped up Keith, and then did the same head turn of disrespect to Jericho that was done previously upon Cole's return and victory in his match a couple weeks ago. Now, the match picked up down the stretch, but it started really slow. It was good work overall, and it was fun for me as a fan of both to see Jericho and Keith Lee wrestle. It was one of those matches I never expected. At the same time, Keith kind of looks like a shell of himself in terms of his athleticism and his ability to go in the ring. And obviously, COVID-19 took a toll on him a couple years ago when he was with WWE, and that whole situation happened. 
he just, you know, when he bounced back with AEW and he was in the tag team with Swerve, maybe because it was a tag team situation, so he didn't have to go through long stretches in the ring, I didn't really notice that there was any difference with his ability to work. But it did shine in this match, and I shine is the wrong word. It showed in this match. And that was pretty depressing as someone who's a really big fan of his. So I don't know if it's a long-term thing, uh, but obviously from a health standpoint, I hope he's okay. And if this is what he is now, if he's just reduced as an athlete, then that's fine. He can still be very successful in the ring, but the ceiling is not what it once was, which was a really, really big dude who's able to move like a cruiserweight, which doesn't really seem to be Keith Lee anymore. Now, Keith did get an excused loss. But seeing both him and Swerve lose on the same show while feuding, like I mentioned earlier, it's really rough booking. Neither of them needed to be involved in these matches. They could have used other people. It didn't advance the Cole Jericho story just because they happened to be in it. And as a big time black and gold NXT fan, it was a little odd to see Cole and Keith together kind of thinking what could have been right in WWE. And I don't mean I'm not referring to the whole Storyline pitch of Adam Cole being Keith Lee's manager, which to reiterate, since it's now picking up steam online again, Cole said was one of like two dozen storylines that he was pitched when WWE was trying to convince him to remain there. It wasn't like the leader in the clubhouse for what he would be doing. But I digress. Uh, you know, it was interesting overall. It was the wrong main event. I thought something else should have been in this spot, but ultimately it did push two different stories forward, even if I would have done it a little bit differently. It did get the job done. On Battle of the Belts, there was an international championship match, Orange Cassidy against Realistico. There were some good sequences here. Cassidy went with an orange punch. The gimmick was that Orange injured his right hand in the match, which could potentially give him an excuse for dropping the title sooner than later. After the bell, Malachi Black appeared on screen saying Orange was talented, but House of Black wasn't done with him and best friends. Buddy Matthews then argued, since they put the trio's titles on the line last week, Orange should defend the international title against him. And that match was set for Dynamite. So another international title match, Orange against Buddy. Orange at the Tornado DDT and the Orange Punch, but immediately sold the hand in really good continuity from Rampage. Buddy stomped it, and Cassidy was checked at ringside by trainers. Orange continued, though. He had a beach break on the apron. Buddy stomped the hand more than taunted with the Orange type of kicks. Cassidy put his hands in his pockets like an idiot, just taking a knee to the face. But he countered into Stun Dog Millionaire, then countered into... Tornado DDTs off the ropes and then outside. And then he hit a regular Tornado DDT flying off the top rope. Cassidy then hit an orange punch, but he didn't sell it this time as much as he did earlier, despite it having taken even more punishment during the match. Buddy goaded Orange into trying to punch him again, caught him with the stomp, then went for his finisher only for Orange to counter it, catching him in the mousetrap pinning combination for the win. This match was a blast. Some actual in-ring storytelling on AEW television, the continuation of an injury angle that will ultimately result in Orange dropping the title to his next significant opponent, and Buddy finally getting to shine as a solo performer really for like the first time. I'm not saying it's his only singles match, but he got to shine as a singles performer for the first time in AEW. I went four stars and A-, minus, a really great mid-show feature, and best of all, I have no other notes. I love the storyline with Orange. I love what they're doing largely with House of Black. I don't like that Matthews and King have lost singles matches so shortly after becoming trios champions. That's a minor gripe. Um, I really like what they're doing all together with this. And Orange is proving to be a really damn good champion. He's probably the number two or three babyface in AEW right now. The question is, who is ultimately going to end this title reign? And I'm curious to see if it happens soon on TV or if they delay it all the way out to the pay-per-view. I think with him selling a hand injury, it should happen sooner than later. Now, on Dynamite, the follow-up that we got to Jay White's huge debut last week was a taped promo with Juice Robinson saying, they're great as a team and Ricky Starks is in trouble. White said it would be the greatest era of Bullet Club ever, calling it Bullet Club Gold. And it seems like they're either going to build out that faction in AEW or that's going to be the name of their team. I'm interested if it is a faction to see who's brought along and how it works out. But I will say, it was a big disappointment to see White debut last week and then not be live one week later. And that's something they also did with the tag team champions. We'll get to that a little bit later. On Rampage, there was an FTW title match. Hook against Ethan Page, FTW rules. They fought into the crowd. Page then pulled Hook into a power slam through a table. Page missed a chair shot that rebounded off the ropes into his face. Hook then hit Twist of Fate and countered Ego's Edge into Red Rum for the win. After the bell, Hook put Page through a table with a T-bone suplex. This was fine. 
One thing that confused me is why the FTW title has been defended in non-FTW rules matches in the past. It would be like defending a hardcore championship in a regular match. That just doesn't make a shred of sense. So then on Dynamite, Page cut a promo about how things have been screwed up recently, and he demanded answers about Matt turning on him and what Matt put in that contract. So Matt and Isaiah Cassidy come out. Matt admits to screwing Ethan Page over. The clause was that Hook beating Page would clear him in private party from being with the firm, and it also let him choose a match and a stipulation. The first stipulation, he said, was when they win whatever match, I guess Matt Hardy against Ethan Page, he didn't really specify, they'll no longer be with the firm. But that was already stipulated by Page losing to Hook. So I don't see how that's another stipulation. Uh, He didn't really get to say any more or explain it, though, because Big Bill and Moriarty attacked. Hook made the save but got beat down. So then Jeff Hardy actually made his return to AEW to a huge pop, and he cleared the ring of the firm, hitting a swanton bomb at the end of the segment. And now it is time to see if everyone who for months now has been saying they don't want Jeff back and he's had enough chances and so on, it is time to see if all those people change their tune. Because that has not just been the prevailing sentiment, but basically the unanimous sentiment online. I'm not surprised Jeff is back because for as much as people want to hope and pray that Tony Khan and AEW are different from Vince McMahon and WWE, it all comes down to the almighty dollar. And with Tony, it all comes down to ratings. If it can add 50,000 viewers to get Jeff Hardy back on television, Tony's going to do it, no matter the risk. Hell, Jeff's probably going to do a swanton bomb off a ladder through some flaming tables in a couple of weeks. I personally have no desire to see Jeff Russell again. I think anyone who believes the 15th time is going to be the charm is fooling themselves, particularly at 45 years old with everything he's gone through. If you're happy he's back, that's fine. I'm not going to tell you how to think. But to me, this is shameful and it's negligent. The lone positive was at least Jeff didn't dance down the ramp this time while making a save. That's the best thing I can say about the entire thing. And you know, this really kind of leads us into the CM Punk conversation that's been percolating online over the last couple of weeks. And it's largely been based around FTR continuously singing CM Punk's praises. And there were reports that he wants back in. I think there was a picture with all three of them together. And then Punk also made that asinine post on Instagram, ripping people in AEW that he deleted one minute later. That came after something leaked about the backstage thing and everything that happened. Simultaneously, by the way, we have AEW All Access showing the return of the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega from that brawl out suspension. And I don't know, man, it just feels like Punk's name is being thrown around a lot. And it feels like it's being thrown back into the conversation purposefully, either because he's definitely coming back, which after the Jeff situation, him returning, I have less belief than ever that Tony will do the right thing and sever the punk relationship. But this is either happening because he's coming back or because FTR and punk are trying to force it into reality. They're trying to manipulate the situation and paint the elite as bad guys or put AEW in a situation where they have to say, well, how can we not bring him back if the fans want him back so bad, even though there's not really a lot of momentum toward that end. And if that is not purposeful publicity, then if I was Tony Khan, I would be infuriated at these guys speaking out of school, especially after re-signing them to a four-year deal and making them champions, which is why something deep down tells me it's all purposeful. But I'm not gonna waste like much time today with this entire punk and con rant. You guys heard that immediately after Brawl Out. It remains my crown jewel on this podcast. Please go listen to it if you haven't heard it already. But let me remind you that Punk assaulted a co-worker, publicly embarrassed another, made his boss look like an ineffectual, privileged, defeat, soft penis debutante. Okay, I just wanted to quote Robert California. I'm the fucking Silver King. But what happened at Brawl Out made Tony look weak and ineffective as a leader. Punk did all this after being crowned champion in a post-show press conference, this following a period where Tony refused to strip him of the title because he didn't want it out there that Punk was no longer his company's champion. Punk cost AEW money. He ruined their momentum, and he put a big crack right in the middle of the facade that everything was 
fine and dandy hunky-dory over there in AEW. Bringing a guy like that back would be pathetic. A different type of pathetic than bringing Jeff Hardy back, but pathetic nonetheless. To effectively work with someone, the number one priority in any industry, but especially professional wrestling, is trust. Do you trust them to do their job well? In wrestling, do you trust them to protect not just their opponent in the ring, but the interest of your company at large? And in Jeff's case, do you trust him to protect himself? There should be no trust for either of these guys for completely different reasons. And that's why I wanted to say my piece here on Punk before something happens. I'll save the rest because you can tell there's plenty of vitriol inside. I will save the rest for if it actually comes to fruition. But with all this CM Punk talk out there, I felt that needed to be said and all of those reminders needed to be shared with you. We'll get back to the wrestling. On Dynamite, Rio and Sky Blue fought Ruby Soho and Tony Storm. There was a lot of good action after the commercial. Storm hit a hip attack and Storm Zero for the win. It was really short. If I had to guess, it got cut for time due to other stuff running long. The faces, I don't think, even got an entrance. The heels typically attacked after the bell, sprayed an L on Rio, then hit a triple powerbomb. Jamie Hayter decided to make the save way too late after Rio already ate the powerbomb. She got her ass beat. Then Britt Baker made the save, for some reason not alongside her teammate Hayter, and she, Baker, not the champion hater, was the one who looked strong coming out of the segment. It's the same stuff every week here. Having Baker be the one standing tall instead of hater, that's a choice. It's a bad choice. And I know AEW is back in Pittsburgh next week. They're going to finally have Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter fight Ruby and Tony in a tag team match on that show. Okay, that makes sense. But you don't need to, like, just because you're at Pittsburgh next week, make Baker look stronger than Hater, and it made zero sense that they didn't just run out together given they're teammates and they're everywhere together. So just really dumb stuff. It's also extremely repetitive. Like how many weeks in a row have we gotten some form of like singles or tag team match babyface against one of the heels from the outcasts? It, it ends with the heels winning, spray painting, post-match attack, save. It has been like six straight weeks of the exact same thing. And you can say, okay, Silver King, sure, but they're trying to like drag this out to get to Pittsburgh for Britt Baker for some, you know, ridiculous reason. And they're also trying to drag it out to double or nothing. That's okay if you need to drag a storyline out. You don't have to use the same storyline every single week. There's two women's storylines, I guess technically three with Anna Jay and Julia Hart, although that was like a one week just reminder that they once hated each other. But there's the Jade Cargill and Taya Valkyrie storyline, and there's the Outcast storyline. And that's it in the entire company. And we're just getting different versions of those in repeat every single week across Rampage and Dynamite. How about just like creating a third and allowing that to take prominence on TV every once in a while? It's just absolutely crazy. So, you know, again, repetitive as hell. I, I actually like the action. Next week's match, I'm very curious to see if something really develops, if a single challenger emerges for Hater. We're still waiting to find out who's going to challenge her for the title, double or nothing. And we'll see where this entire thing goes. But is it frustrating? Absolutely. On Rampage, the acclaimed Daddy Magic and Cool Hand fought four jobbers to pay off that eight-man match that was mentioned last week. Acclaimed scissored each other because they refused to do it with JAS. Then they hit the arrival and mic drop for the win. They all raised hands together after the bell, only for the three heels in JAS to attack the faces. It's awful stuff. Total waste of time. Who is this benefiting? Nobody. On Battle of the Belts, the ROH tag team titles were on the line. Lucha Bros defending against Powerhouse Hobbs and QT Marshall. You may ask me, hey, Silver King, why did Hobbs and QT Marshall have a tag team title shot at some ROH titles? You can ask me that 10,000 times, Go, I'm never going to have an answer for you. Uh, the QTV segment on Rampage was terrible as usual. In the match, Lucha Bros hit their normal assortment of tag team moves. Pentagon ate a diamond cutter with Ray Phoenix catching QT with a Canadian Destroyer. Phoenix then splashed Hobbs off of Penta's shoulders off the top rope. Penta jumped off Phoenix's back for a second destroyer on QT. Hobbs no-sold a lot of offense. Alex Abrahantes got kicked in the junk by the woman on QTV. I don't even know her name. There were a ton of distractions. Penta got powerbombed into the apron, but Phoenix countered Marshall into a Huracarana with a trap cover for the title retention. Thank heavens QT didn't take a finisher and got protected here. It's sarcasm if you couldn't tell. Uh, entertaining stuff in the finishing sequence, but there was never even a second of belief that there'd be any result other than the titles being retained. Also, I could have sworn that Tony said the ROH streaming deal would keep all the ROH storylines and titles off of AEW TV, yet here we were 
right back at it a couple weeks later. Then on Dynamite, we had Powerhouse Hobbs defending the TNT title against Silas Young, who's from Milwaukee and they were in Milwaukee. So for the second time in a row, he got a match. Hobbs squashed Young with an inverted fireman's carry slam. This was another open challenge that wasn't an open challenge and another title match that didn't need to be a title match. Wardlow then appeared outside and destroyed a really poorly painted used car that Hobbs got like three days ago and was making some big deal out of that it was special. It was blatantly pre-taped this segment because Wardlow stuck the forklift prongs through the windows. And then on the next cut, like a second and a half later, the prongs were underneath the car tipping it over. Hobbs, seemingly unaffected by his prized vehicle being destroyed, decided, you know what? I'm not going to rush into the parking lot and try to stop him. Instead, I'm just going to go ahead and put Silas Young through this table. Except Wardlow's music hit. They brawled. The locker room separated them. Wardlow then powerbombed Aaron Solo through the tables with Solo's head ricocheting off one of them that didn't break. He may have gotten concussed for real. This was an absolute unmitigated disaster of a segment as far as I was concerned. Come on, it's this, this a joke, right? It's a joke, Goose. You ripping me? On Rampage, I mentioned Anna J fought Julia Hart. Commentary told us both women thrive since joining factions. Neither of them has been relevant whatsoever, so I don't know what thriving has actually happened with them. Julia flipped Anna off the ropes and from a tree of woe position and followed with a moonsault. Julia eventually distracted the referee by throwing a chair into the ring, misted Anna in the face, and won with an inside cradle. There were a lot of half-assed moves and other times where they were working excruciatingly slow here. And then that finish missed without even adding a finisher. Big yikes from that. On Rampage, Jade Cargill and Taya Valkyrie were in some mediation session with that RJ City guy who might be the single most annoying person in all of professional wrestling. They argued over the finishing move with Taya demanding respect, Jade calling her bitch, and them arguing. I don't even know what I'm supposed to say about this. On Battle of the Belts, the TBS title was on the line. Jade Cargill against Billy Starks. Nothing like getting a title match in your AEW debut. Cargill hit a pump kick and won with Jade in seven minutes and 30 seconds. This lasted longer than Jade defending her title against people actually on the roster. Taya entered immediately and danced down the ramp. Jade met her, missed a belt shot, got knocked down, and then she escaped the ring. Again, what am I even supposed to say about this stuff? It is just awful. Block at zero! On Dynamite, we got a similar vignette with Christian Cage, Luchasaurus, and a red light with Christian at the end saying, things have changed. Have they? Because it doesn't make sense for Christian to still be involved with Luchasaurus, given the Jungle Boy feud is over, and Luchasaurus largely failed him in that feud. And then lastly, on Battle of the Belts, Mark Briscoe backstage said he wasn't looking back to losing the ROH TV title match against Samoa Joe. Uh, Jay Lethal interrupted, saying Mark didn't let anyone down because everyone loves him. He offered them to work together. Briscoe shook his hand, and then suddenly the entire Jeff Jarrett crew surrounded them, and he got confused because he thought he was only going to work with Lethal, not all of them. And I actually found this to be a very enjoyable dynamic. I want to see what happens with Briscoe and these guys. And I like it because it's a low card feud, not involving the titles anymore. It's something more appropriate for all of them to be in, though I did hope that Briscoe would win the ROH TV title. And I was disappointed that Samoa Joe ultimately retained. So that is it from this week in AEW. As you can tell, there were things I liked on the shows. Notably, the two big matches or two of the three big matches were great, uh, but a lot of the storytelling major issues, holes in it, and it's just not that difficult to do better. I gave you ways through my commentary on how it could have been executed better. They just seem to be missing the mark in so many little things, and as a viewer, that is notably frustrating. So with that, let's move over to NXT. A lot happened. They're building immediately for spring break and in two weeks, and then a little bit further down the line, NXT Battleground. Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams opened NXT with Melo admitting that he let his guard down and got caught slipping. He said Braun Breaker didn't pass on the torch. He took it and the fans have moved on. Melo offered Breaker a spot in the number one contendership fatal four-way that was set for later in the show. When Dragon Lee interrupted, put Melo over, said he'd be challenging. JD McDonough interrupted, saying he's above the noise and he's the best in the ring. Then Grayson Waller was next, taking the third spot and razzing the crowd for thinking he was gone from NXT. And that was the entire segment. Really formulaic from end to end. The start of Melo's title run, it has not been as hot as I would have hoped, but it is early, and let's see what he does coming off the first title match at Spring Breaking. 
Andre Chase put Duke Hudson over as a fighter during the Chase U MVP ceremony, where he basically said, motherfucker, without the ER live on USA Network. Gotta be more careful there. Uh, Hudson said he doesn't like trophies or ceremonies, but he did put himself over for carrying Chase U on his back at Stand and Deliver. They did an MVP chant, and then as Hudson started spelling out Chase U, Braun Breaker wearing all black interrupted. Braun said he's not in the four-way, doesn't want to be because the title was a weight around his neck and the fans are scumbags. He suggested Hudson take the spot and offered a hand, which Hudson shook. He then turned his back and Breaker rebounded off the ropes with a spear, not to Hudson, but to Chase. Then he tore the big Chase U flag and then broke the stick over his knee. I'd say this was a fair first attempt at being heel for Braun. It would have been much more effective if he just entered the ring looked like he was going to congratulate Hudson, and then speared the hell out of him. The promo needs a lot of work, and it's exactly why we said for months now that he needed to stay in NXT. It should have come across better. I don't have much doubt that in time it will. But again, this was a paradigm of what we have been saying of why Braun was nowhere near ready for the main roster, while so many fans thought he was just going to get called up immediately. So we got the Fatal 4-Way number one contendership, Dragon Lee, McDonough, Waller, and Hudson, Lee and McDonough went high risk, so Hudson geared himself up for a tope only to be caught running with Waller's rolling stunner. Waller hit the stupid springboard double through the legs drop. Hudson went on a big, long run with a ton of offense, including a German suplex, where he pulled himself over the ropes, landed, and hit Lee with it. He also hit two electric chairs before eating a spike poison rana from McDonough as a counter to the third. JD flung himself over the ropes for a spinning elbow and hit Devil inside only for Lee to break the fall with a coup de gras. McDonough tried a top rope Spanish fly, but instead ate a hanging double stomp. Lee then tope suicided Hudson and had a pump knee on JD in what was a false finish. Lee countered a razor's edge, throwing Hudson face first into the turnbuckle. He followed with a snap German suplex on JD and a Liger bomb on Hudson, only for Waller to roll into the ring, breaking the fall with a stunner and then landing atop Hudson for the one, two, three. Waller then drank a shoey after the match, uh, which... I thought he was saving for a championship win, but nevertheless, that's what he did. Uh, Mello came out after the bell. They had a face-off, basically leading into their match. Based on the talent in this match, no surprise it was good, but it really exceeded my expectations, and it did hit banger level for me. Dragon Lee is the truth. Hudson is better than he has ever been. McDonough continues to shine in really big spots, and Waller is always solid. He was the right winner here, given it's clear he's leaving the territory, and Mello getting a win over him before he leaves is smart. It was also logically explained that he was able to be in the match because his unsanctioned loss against Johnny Gargano did not go on his win-loss record. Therefore, there was no reason for him not to get a chance like this. This was just a blast, a really fun main event, and a smart booking decision top to bottom. I went four stars and an A-. minus. Super, super entertaining. The Women's Tag Team Championships are on the line. Alba Fire and Isla Dawn defending against Fallon Henley and Kiana James. The former champions argued in the locker room with James wanting to cheat and saying Brooks Jensen didn't want to be around them, but he eventually pulled up after the bell. The current champions had a really nice entrance from the music to the graphics to some smoke. They actually looked pretty great as a team. And as I said, this was a title rematch, though for some reason, I didn't really realize it going into it. Henley ate a roundhouse kick, but countered fire into a Canadian destroyer. Jensen ran down, handed Henley the bag, and tried to get her to hit Dawn with it. It was so blatant that he was like screaming in the ring, jumping up and down. The referee saw him and ejected him. Josh Briggs tried to calm him down at ringside, so Brooks shoved him. And a distracted Henley ate a backbreaker, swanton bomb combo finisher for the title retention. Jensen then carried James to the back. I hate sounding like a broken record here, but shit, man, this storyline is not for me. It's not the concept of it which has been done before in different ways. It's the execution. It's so dominological. For example, Henley just hit a destroyer. So why is Jensen telling her to cheat when she had the upper hand in the match? And why run all the way down into the middle of the ring to do it? The dumb finish actually ruined what was a surprisingly good match with Henley in particular showing out near the end. So that was pretty disappointing as well. Sol Ruka and Danny Palmer were doing a TikTok when Tiffany Stratton came up giving them shit. Palmer has been showing out big time on NXT Level Up. I don't watch it, but I've seen some clips, and holy shit, is she impressive for a neophyte. Anyway, this explained their scheduled match on NXT. We had Ruka against Stratton. They did some choreographed gymnastics until Stratton offered a hand as a ruse to help get the edge. Ruka hit a double underhook suplex, two power slams, and the front flip corner splash. Stratton then caught her flying into a forward roll, hitting the prettiest moonsault ever 
for the win in five minutes and 30 seconds. Stratton later said she should clearly be number one contender given she's already beat Indy Hartwell twice recently. And by the way, she's correct about that. She probably should be number one contender. Both are incredibly green, Ruka more than Stratton. But if they can keep developing at this rate, three, five years from now, holy shit, this same match is going to be a banger. And Stratton is definitely right, as I said, about being number one contender that probably should wait until Battleground, but I could see that match happening at Spring Break and instead. Gigi Dolan got a video package visiting her old condemned home out in Georgia and talking about her struggle to get out of there and make something of herself. She said JC Jane broke her face and her heart, but would never break her will, basically repeating what JC said last week. And it seemed like this was going to be some really deep video package where we learned a lot about Gigi, except it lasted 60 seconds, which was really disappointing. Either tell us the story or don't, but don't go all the way out there with all this effort and then half-ass the entire thing. You know what I'm saying? Like she does have a compelling and heartbreaking story for real. You can find it on YouTube. It's devastating what's happened to her in her life. And I get not wanting to go through the entire thing on television, but give her a three and a half minute package and, and let's get some juice here. Not a 60 second thing where you're kind of just glossing over her home and she's cutting a really quick promo. It just didn't make any sense why they did that. Uh, Cora Jade came out and said she returned to the women's division, all being flipped upside down, and she wanted to call out some people. She said Zoe Stark is talented, but always the challenger, never the champion. She said she made Roxanne Perez by turning on her, and she won't discredit her championship win, even though she just went ahead and talked shit about her anxiety, suggesting that Roxy can't handle the pressure. Next was Dolan, who she said had a big Instagram famous ass. Then with Stratton, she said Tiffany looked and played the part, but didn't run NXT like she did. And then with Lyra Valkyria, she said she showed no fear, but she should fear Cora. And lastly, Indy Hartwell, she basically just said it took her long enough to win a title. The crowd chanted boring multiple times during this promo, and they were right on. Uh, Lyra was the one who responded, saying the division thrived without Cora. And now Jade is jealous. She said if Cora even tried to go after the title, she'd rip her eyes out. Jade tried to attack, but Valkyria got up on her, and that ended the segment. You know, cutting a promo like Cora tried to here is tough. So tough that people on the main roster struggle to do it. And she absolutely struggled here. There was just a lack of believability in her voice. And the insults or punchlines, they weren't strong enough to keep the crowd engaged and interested, thinking that she might say something worth listening to. That's the key to promos like these. You have to hit a few lines early, like really dagger lines. So the crowd is like, oh shit, I got to hang on every word this person is about to say. She didn't. And they didn't, and it made for a rough segment. NXT Anonymous posted a video showing the D'Angelo family attacking Pretty Deadly while outside the Performance Center on a coffee break and then stuffing one of them into the trunk of their car. You gotta love mafioso tactics being babyface tactics. Uh, The guys were later celebrating their success over espresso. When they welcomed Roxanne back, she walked into the arena. Perez said her mission was getting her title back. Then Stark comes up to her, starts talking shit about her anxiety. Roxy shot right back at her. She then dapped up stacks. And she had just walked out of the frame when Pretty Deadly attacked the D'Angelo family from behind and used box cutters to tear up their leather jackets. Again, it's hysterical that a couple mafioso can kidnap a dude and be baby faces, yet the heels are heels for attacking them after the fact. It was a good promo from Roxy. Overall, solid stuff top to bottom. Wesley backstage was cutting his normal promo when Drew Gulak came up asking if he can still get the job done if he's grounded and not flying high. He and Charlie Dempsey indicated they'd cut his legs out and take the title, to which Wes responded, shit, man, you know I accept any challenge, just challenge me. I think it's an interesting match booking, solid segment, and curious to see when it actually goes down. Isla Dragunov fought Von Wagner. The stipulation here was that Mr. Stone would leave Wagner if he lost the match. Von was aggressive at the bell, but soon got taken down with that leg hook German suplex. Wagner came back with a double underhook slam, but Dragunov quickly hit Torpedo Moscow for the relatively easy win. Stone officially left Wagner after the bell. Then Dijak entered, staring down Isla from behind at first. He said, you say pain makes you feel alive? That's great. Then I'm going to make you feel immortal. And I swear, this Dijak gimmick is so damn corny. It's like an 80s movie villain. And if that's the idea, then it's hitting. I just don't think it's the idea. It feels so dated. 
but that's what they're doing with Dijak. Anyway, Dragunov was the obvious winner. My guess is Stone heads up to the main roster and links back up with Chelsea Green, which is way better than him being stuck with Wagner if that's what happens. Him, Green, and Carmella would be a great trio on the main roster. Wagner, he's going to have to find some way to get over. Maybe a tag team is the answer for him because I'm not really sure what else he can do, but happy-go-lucky big dude in a tag team with a younger, smaller guy that brings stuff out of him, that might actually work. I don't know if they're going to go in that direction, though. Gallus approached Tank Ledger taking his NXT photo shoot with Joe Coffey going rabid on him for no reason whatsoever. Norman Smiley made a random cameo to break it up. That led to a match. As Gallus walked away, Schism got in their way with Dyad saying it was typical Gallus picking fights with guys they know they can squash. Basically, Dyad wanted back in the title picture, saying Gallus has avoided them. So we mentioned last week that the former Grizzled Young veterans asked for their WWE release, but were convinced to give Shawn Michaels and WWE a little bit of a shot to turn things around, come up with new creative for them, etc. James Drake, now Jagger Reed, clearly is growing out his beard and hair, and it looks like they all got rid of the contact lenses as well. Plus, getting back into it with old NXT UK foes adds a little bit of hope that maybe they can transition back to the old gimmick, though Zach Gibson is still bald and clean-shaven and looks relatively awful. I'm just going to be clear and honest about it. So he would have a way to go. But I could see a situation where they're in the title match, they lose, they get frustrated with schism, they leave schism, wait two months away, come back as grizzled young veterans, maybe even on the main roster. That would be really cool. Diamond Mine backstage were confidently back together with the Creed brothers challenging Gallus for the titles next week. They overlooked Dyad's challenge, saying they would be watching the match with Coffee later. And then we got Ledger and Coffee. This was Joe Spivak's TV debut, Spivak, Spivak, whatever the case. Ledger hit a nice overhead belly-to-belly suplex, then a cartwheel over Coffee, followed by a standing frog splash. Coffee caught Ledger with a cold left hand, shoulder tackled him into the steel steps outside, hit a discus forearm plus a discus lariat for the win over the neophyte. Ledger had a couple moments here, still super green, as one would expect, given his lack of experience. The Creed stormed out after the bell with Schism also running to the ring as all eight guys brawled. This obviously led to a triple threat title match, which is being booked next week. And again, I would hope that Dyad loses that match, then leaves Schism, and eventually comes back as GYV. Let's hope that's the case. Noam Dar got a video package where he put himself over and explained the rules of the Heritage Cup, which is now an official prize in NXT. It was a good promo from Dar, who is vastly underrated and overlooked. I'm not sure the cup, though, is needed, given there's already a North American championship, but maybe they unify them down the line. I could see that happening. Or perhaps the idea is to keep it around and have that be a tie back once NXT Europe opens, whenever the hell that happens. Eddie Thorpe fought Javier Bernal. Damon Kemp walked down to watch after a minute. Thorpe hit a German suplex and double underhook twisting neckbreaker and got the win. Kemp stared him down from the ramp, and that was really it. It's a showcase match. Thorpe has something, but we'll have to see if it gets harnessed and developed. I was disappointed, though. Again, Bernal, being on TV, didn't get a chance to cut a promo. Let him do it while he's walking to the ring. Let him do it backstage. The guy is a talker. He's not... I mean, he's fine in the ring. Don't get me wrong. But the reason he gets over is because he speaks. They've stopped doing the Mackenzie Mitchell segments. I have no idea why. And Bernal doesn't get to speak at all anymore. It just doesn't make sense. And lastly, Scripps got a video package asking if Axiom was scared of the guy behind the mask. He said he can't be exposed because he's going to expose Axiom instead. It's weird to talk about someone hiding behind a mask when your character hides behind a mask. This was a bunch of whatever. Um, The matches and the athleticism is way more exciting than the storytelling and the storyline. It just... It's a whole bunch of nothing here. And that was NXT this week, largely a good show. Uh, second straight week that I thought NXT put on one of the better programs in wrestling. Last week, I think it may have well been the best episode of television, WWE, AEW, whatever. NXT last week was awesome. The show after Stand and Deliver. This one, not the same level as that. Still quality. Unfortunately, NXT the last two weeks has gotten absolutely hammered in the ratings first because of the indictment of a certain someone last week and this week because of the NBA play-in games. The playoffs are going to be ongoing, you know, you know, going forward here. And I'm just kind of concerned that these ratings are going to dip and people might start getting, you know, scared about NXT long-term. The show is better than it has been in a long, long time. They have finally made the full transition out of 2.0 into something that's kind of an amalgamation of 2.0 and the old black and gold NXT, probably... 
like 65% 2.0 and 35% black and gold NXT. But what's happening right now, it's a really damn good program. I wish more people watched it, number one. And number two, I just hope that they can get out of this NBA playoff you know, period unscathed with belief in what they are doing because it's working well. If I was WWE, I would spend five minutes. You have a three-hour Raw every Monday night immediately before NXT. I would spend five minutes on every Raw doing something to feature NXT. Could be a backstage segment. It could be airing something that happened on NXT, highlights from it going into a commercial break. Um, you could have an NXT talent come up for a match and they can lose. You want to put someone over? You want to put Bronson Reed over? Go ahead, bring up Von Wagner. Let them have a match and Wagner get beat. I'm not saying Wagner is really the wrong. Maybe Tony D'Angelo is a better example. But you you start featuring these characters and you have commentary. Hey, if you want to see more of this, then tune into NXT Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on USA Network. Like it's easy cross promotion. And with Triple H behind, you know, in gorilla position with Triple H having the book, there's really no reason not to do it. So I hope WWE actually starts promoting NXT. The show is good. And for those of you who listen to the recaps and haven't been watching, I hope you watch because it's super entertaining. And that, folks, wraps up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. You know, a lot to go over, of course, through AEW and NXT. Pleased, as always, to bring it to you on Thursday. Now, Getting Over will be back next Tuesday with our WWE episode covering SmackDown Raw and everything in between, so you're not going to want to miss that. Of course, this week's WWE episode already in the podcast feed, so be sure to listen to that if you have not already. On the way out, it is time for the reminders. First, the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple, of course. Leave the written review. And if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, highlights, analysis, and so much more. Again, on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And please remember, I happen to love the number five. So join us. Become an official Getting Overhead and get a bunch of Getting Over extras at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over for five dollars a month you get news posts bonus audio and interactions with us you can also join yearly or if you just want to contribute to the show and support us you can buy us a meet for five bucks and just say thank you in fact you can buy us more than one as many as you want again buymeacoffee.com slash getting over thank you all for listening to today's show as noted we will be back on tuesday this is the silver king signing off and leaving you with just three final words bye for now Thank you.